Well, everybody loves a comeback story, right? Everybody loves the underdog coming back from the end. And when we think about comebacks, in fact, it's interesting. If you go online and you just search the greatest comebacks in history, well, what you're first going to get is uh, zingers because somehow in our culture, that's what people think is really important. So I say this to you and then you say that to me and that's a great comeback. And I'm like, no, that's not the kind of comebacks we're talking about. Tell us stories about people who were down and out but who made it back uh, into the race. And so you kind of clarify your search a little bit and then through millions of pieces of information, and it comes back and says, oh, you want to know the greatest comebacks in sports history? And immediately, that's what all your results are going to lead you to, the greatest comeback in this basketball game, the greatest comeback in the NFL, the greatest comeback in this or that or the other. But come on, when we start thinking about comeback stories, all of us can remember the times in our lives where we came up against a difficult place and we wondered if we were going to make it back. If you've never come to one of those places in life, can I just say again, God bless you. That is amazing, and you should be leading this series. You should be leading the church. You should be proclaiming Jesus to the whole city, because most of us in the building today, I would venture to say, if we were honest, all of us in the building today have been at a place in our lives where we wondered, am I going to make it back physically, mentally, financially? Is my marriage going to make it back? Am I going to have, is my mind going to make it back? Am I going to make it through school, through the this season, through this moment? Am I going to make it? Anybody felt that anywhere in your life? Am I going to make it? And yet somehow by the grace of God, we're all sitting here today. And we're not all that we're going to be. And we're we're not all that God has dreamed for us to be yet, but we are here today. And as long as we're here and God is here, there is the opportunity and the possibility for a great comeback story in our lives. Just setting up this series we're going to be in for the next few weeks together, I just want you to know that there is a chance for you. We come to church, and I think sometimes the enemy gets right in our head straight away, and he starts to get us to play the comparison game about all the other people who are doing better or worse than us. But can I just remind us today that the Christian story is a story of comeback. Our story opens with Adam and Eve in paradise And yet they failed miserably and needed a comeback. And God appeared in grace and mercy in the garden. And yes, they had consequences. And yes, the whole world has had consequences. But the mercy of God came into the garden. And they had a story with God. And they are in the story of God. Because mercy met them in the midst of their failure. There was a man named Noah. We, we all know him. He built a boat. He built an ark. He saved the world. But Noah had a major drinking problem. But he had a comeback. And God used him powerfully. And he's in our story. There's a man named Abraham at the beginning of our story. He's the father of our faith. But Abraham had a waiting problem and he gave up on the promise of God. He actually tried to make God's plans happen on his own by having a relationship with his female maidservant and not his wife and seemingly messed up the plan. But yet God still had mercy on him and he still fulfilled the promise he made to Abraham. And at 100 years of age, he did have a son and his son was the father of a faith 
And Abraham is the one who has launched out descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and we are a part of them. Abraham bailed out on God's plan, but there was a comeback for Abraham, and he made it. There was a man named Moses. He had an anger problem in the righteousness of God. He killed a man, and because of that, he had to leave Pharaoh's house, which he grew up in, and banished out into the wilderness in a desert environment as a shepherd of sheep on the backside of life in the middle of nowhere, a bush burned, and God spoke to Moses and said, I know you lost your temper. I know you killed a man. I know it looks like life has passed you by, but I'm gonna use you to lead my people out of the bondage of Egypt into the promised land, I choose you. And Moses, who had a speech impediment and was all kind of shaken down in self-confidence, went and stood before the Pharaoh and said, I'm telling you on behalf of God that you're gonna tell them, Aaron, you're gonna let the people go. And Moses had a comeback story. And Moses disobeyed God even after that. And God wouldn't let him go into the promised land. But yet in the New Testament, there's this crazy story on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus was glorified in the presence of his disciples. And with him were two other people standing in that moment. And one of them was Moses. Because even in the grace of God, there is a comeback for the people who've already had a comeback. And though he didn't lead Israel across the Jordan River, Joshua did that. Moses still appeared with Jesus in the promised land. Our story, hello, is a story of people who have stumbled and fallen, yet somehow in this ocean of the grace and mercy of God, there is a comeback for everyone who puts their faith and hope in Jesus. And this is the best part of this series. Everybody needs a comeback, and everybody gets a comeback. In fact, our gospel is a gospel of the comeback, and our Jesus is the God of the comeback. And everybody has a chance as long as Jesus is in the room. Our text today is in the Gospel of Luke, and I, I love this story because this is, uh, you know, things are down to cases in this story. We talked last week when we were celebrating communion about the last day of Jesus' life, and we're still in that last day. In that night where Jesus willingly gave up himself for the sins of the world, and now morning has come, and he's been rushed through um, injustice, and he's been uh, given 40 lashes minus one, and now he's been led out to crucifixion on a Roman cross. And as God would have it in this story in Luke's account, there are other people involved in the very crucifixion account of Jesus. And we see this beginning in verse 32. It says, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with Jesus to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, that's the translation of Golgotha, if you've heard that word. There they crucified Jesus along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. So 
We, we understand even in Luke's account of the crucifixion that God put Jesus in close proximity to criminals in his last hours on planet Earth. Gee, this story, the, the, the two criminals, by the way, are mentioned by Luke. Luke being a doctor, and Luke's account is a very detail-oriented account. Because of his background and training, Luke is looking for, for the inside story. He's looking for the specifics. He's looking to chronicle the events of the day. And he doesn't miss this interaction. And he wants us to know, on behalf of God, who's inspiring him to write this text. When they crucified Jesus, I don't want you just to think about Jesus, although that would seemingly be the story. It's all about Jesus, all the focus on Jesus, all the attention on Jesus. But Luke says, no, I want to draw your attention to two other people. On the the right side of Jesus was a common criminal, and on the left side of Jesus was a common criminal. Three men were crucified that day, not one. Now, why is that important? If Jesus is dying for the sins of the world, if Jesus is God's sacrifice for all the wrongs of our lives, why don't we just make the story about Jesus? Well, possibly because God wants us to know that in his thinking all the time is the person who's in the worst shape of all. That we don't forget that there's always a connection and a correlation between the work of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus, and a common, ordinary person at the end of their rope. That we never miss that this isn't an isolated, solitary event, but this is a connected event that what Jesus is doing is not just for the story, but it's for the people. And so Luke wants us to know, I want you to see Jesus for sure, but I want you to know about this guy on the right, and I want you to know about this guy on the left. Now, now we don't know uh, about these these criminals. We we call them thieves. We're not exactly sure what happened to them, but we know that in the, the days of Jesus' crucifixion under Roman rule, there's a very low tolerance for crime in Jerusalem. Uh, The situation politically was very unstable. And so to keep an iron clasp on the society, the Romans had a low tolerance for any kind of crime, especially the crime of stealing. And you could lose your life for it. And when you lost your life, they were going to make an example of you. So they were going to crucify you outside the city on a common roadway where people passing by would go, okay, I don't know what they did, but I want to make sure I don't ever do what they did. And so these two guys convicted Getting just punishment under the system of the day are on the right and the left of Jesus. And then verse 34, here's what Jesus is thinking about in this moment. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. So this is to the guards. This is to the men who just nailed him to the cross. This is the men who are right below his feet, as it says in the next verse, dividing up his clothing and, and tearing his robe and, and casting lots to see who's going to get to take the robe of Jesus. And there's all this mayhem going on, and Jesus has compassion in the midst of it all and looks at the crucifiers and says, God, you know they don't know the whole story. They don't really understand all the implications of this moment. I just have a heart of forgiveness towards them even in this moment. And verse 35 says, the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. 
Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, the chosen one, the soldiers also came up and they mocked Jesus. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, then save yourself. And Jesus already had a history of saving other people. He already had the history of walking into situations where people were dying, where people were sick, where people were outcasts, where people were lame, where people had been shoved to the side and sort of excommunicated from the faith. And he'd already walked into many of these situations where people didn't have food to eat, where there was a storm on the sea, and he would walk into these moments and he would call down power from, from above and he would exude power from above and he would change the circumstances. And so now they're giving it back to him saying, oh, I thought you were the one that walked on water. I thought, I, I thought you were the one that fed the 5,000. Aren't you the one that spit in the mud and put it on the guy's eyes and then he saw again? Isn't that who you are? Then come on then. This was would be the time to come through for yourself. And they don't know that Jesus is giving his innocent life for the sins of the world. He can't be bothered by their rebuke because his focus has been so determined to be the innocent lamb of God slain for all of us. And nothing is going to stand in his way, not even the taunting of men. And Jesus himself knows that he has the power to say a word and obliterate the scene. He has the power to call down the angels of God and to blow up the moment. But he just keeps yielding, and he keeps yielding to the purpose for which he came it says in verse 38, there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. But then here come our two criminals, verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Now, this is a guy who's been wounded in life, right? This is a person that a psychologist is going to tell you this guy has got some issues because his pain and his hurt and his self view and self-worth is so distorted that not only did it lead him into a life of crime, not only did it lead him into a life of hurt and pain, but now in the very last breath of his life, when you already know the story, the way that a, a crucifixion went down is they nailed you to a cross and you hung there until through the pain that was was racing through your body, you no longer had the strength to push up off your feet and to catch a breath. And so as you would, as you would, you would lose strength, eventually you would lose breath, and eventually you would suffocate, and eventually that's how you would die. A slow, painful death of asphyxiation. And sometimes this would last days. It, depending on what kind of shape you were in when you got there, you could literally hang on the cross for several days. And then at the end of the time, if you didn't die soon enough, the Romans would just come with a, a metal rod and they would just break your shins. And then you would push up again and then you would die. And in that moment where, where this person's fighting for life and fighting for breath and fighting to, to prolong this as long as possible with the breath, this person is thinking, what I want to do with my last breath is I want to insult the guy next to me 
who's hanging here along with me, that's a lot of hatred and that's a lot of hurt. Some of us understand that today, of being in such a place where so many wounds have been inflicted on us. All we know how to do is inflict wounds on other people. There's been so much insult poured into our life. All we know how to do is to pour insult back into other people's life. It's just, it's just a defense mechanism. It's retaliation in a way of self-preservation. And that's what this criminal was doing. He's insulting Jesus and he's saying the same thing the others were saying. And in this insulting, one of the phrases that Luke records is, aren't you the Christ? Then save yourself and save us. Now that wasn't a cry for salvation because we know Luke has specifically recorded that he's been taunting Jesus along with the others. Yeah, I'm with them. I get what they're saying. If you're so great, do something. If you're the king, do something. If you got power, use it now, man. Come on. What's holding you back? Save yourself. And while you're at it, do you mind saving us? Can you imagine this scene? I mean, I know you've heard this story. You've been to the Jesus play. I know you've seen the movie, but come on. Can you imagine this scene? It blows my mind that there are three men bleeding to death, suffocating to death. And in this moment, one of them is insulting Jesus, and another has the sense to understand who he is. But the other criminal verse 40, rebuked him. I I would love to know all the words that were spoken there. Maybe these are all of them, but we know that none of the gospels record every single detail that happened at the cross, and so we don't know what other things might have been said, but I, I don't know how this came out, but you know, I'm thinking in my mind, will you shut up? That's what I'm thinking. If I'm this other guy, you are an idiot. What are you thinking? And in his tone, He speaks to this other criminal across Jesus, and he says, don't you fear God? Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, you mean mean right down here at the very end of our lives you don't even fear God? It was easy not to fear God when we were stealing and in the streets. It was easy not to fear God when we were running the tables the way we wanted to. It was easy not to fear God when we hadn't gotten caught. It was easy not to fear God when we still thought we were in charge. But look, man, we're down at the bottom, and we're going to bleed to death and suffocate to death right here on these crosses. You and me, this is the end of the day. And you're telling me at the end of the day you don't even fear God? That right now with your dying breath you don't even fear God? And then here it comes. He said, we are, he said, since you are under the same sentence, then he says, look in verse 41, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. He got it. He saw it. He understood the gravity of the moment. And either because he had heard Jesus teach, he'd seen Jesus do a miracle, He had a friend who had been touched by Jesus and he had heard the story. Somehow all of the dots were connecting and he knew this man is an innocent man. You and me are getting what we deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
Nine word prayer. It could have been the only prayer he ever prayed in his life. It may have been the only statement he ever made toward God in his entire life. But at the end of the day, with the fear of God in his heart and with a clear view of who Jesus was, he prays a nine word prayer. It's not this grand theological statement. It's a simple, I I don't have a lot of breaths left prayer, but while I have some breaths left, Jesus, will you remember me? When you come in your kingdom, Jesus, please remember me. Please remember me. Isn't that really what all of us are hoping for today? That somehow in this crazy world that God hasn't forgotten us? That even though our marriage has hit rock bottom, don't we really wanna know, yes, is there a chance? Yes, is the mediation gonna work? Yes, is this gonna happen? But don't we really wanna know, God, have, do, do you remember me? Have you for, forgotten me? And that's, that's the heart of it. That's getting down below all the right words and all the church prayers and all the right language. That's getting down to the real issue of our hearts. God, do you remember me? Or God, please don't forget me. And that was his prayer. Jesus. Jesus. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Somehow he knew. This guy's coming back. (laughs) And when he comes back, I want him to remember me. I've heard the teaching. Maybe maybe he was there when Jesus had made the statement, I'm gonna die, yes, but I'll be raised from the dead in three days. You know, even back at that Passover meal that we talked about last week when Jesus was saying, this is the bread and this is the wine, this is my body broken for you, this is the cup of a new covenant. Listen to what he said in Matthew 26, 32. We didn't read this verse, but as he's talking about the one who was gonna betray him, he says, even then Peter makes this grand statement, I'm not gonna betray you. And Jesus says, before the rooster crows three times, you're gonna deny me, and then he says, but here's the thing, and listen to Jesus' statement in Matthew 26, 32, he said, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. He just throws little phrases like that all the time. Yes, this is my body broken for you. Yes, this is the blood of a new covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Yes, one of you is going to betray me. In fact, all of you are going to let me down. That's what this is about. You can't, but I can. You're going to fall, but I'm going to raise you up. That's what the whole story is about, and in the middle of all all this last supper, he just says, and oh, one more time, let, re- let me remind you, after I have risen, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. I'm coming back, people. I am the God of the comeback. I am Jesus, and my story is a comeback story. I'm gonna be crucified, yes. I'm gonna be dead and buried, yes. I'm gonna descend into the depths of the earth, yes. I'm gonna carry the guilt and the shame of the world, yes. But God is gonna call my name. God is gonna raise me up. I'm gonna beat death, beat hell, beat beat the grave, beat the darkness, beat sin and all of its penalty, I'm coming back and I'm gonna be seated at the right hand of God. I'm gonna rebuild this temple. I'm gonna rule and I'm gonna reign. That's what I'm gonna do. And somehow this thief had gotten a little bit of that information and he said, I heard you're coming back. I heard you're gonna rule and reign. I heard you're coming with power. When you come in power, will you remember me? What a prayer. With your very last breath. And Jesus said, with one of his last breaths, 
I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. <laughs> I'm just trying to see the face of this guy. He says, can you say that one more time? I said, I'm telling you the truth, man. Today, you'll be with me in paradise today. Three men are dying here, and two of them are going to paradise. You know, historians and archaeologists tell us that the place where Jesus was crucified was a landfill, a garbage dump that made it convenient because after they had broken the legs of the other criminals and they'd finally died, most of their families are not around. Nobody's there to claim their bodies. Nobody wants anything to do with these people. They would just peel them off the beams and throw their bodies into the garbage heap and the the dogs and the animals would come in and just eat what was left off the bones and there really was no burial and there was no evidence. Only because Jesus was the Son of God did the prophecy have to be fulfilled that a man was there who had authority with the courts to say, I want Jesus' body and I want it before sundown. I want to give him a proper burial. But normally a body would just be peeled off the beam, thrown into the garbage heap, a couple of nights or a night of the dogs and the wild animals and there wouldn't be any evidence of what had happened. That was the end of the day for these two criminals. But yet Jesus changed history and he changed destiny for one of them and he said today this very day you're going to be with me in paradise we may be given our lives on a garbage dump but i'm telling you paradise has come to the garbage dump today in the midst of a landfill the paradise of god has been born in a heart of simple faith people i'm telling you don't ever count god out and don't ever count anybody else out because god God is the God of the comeback, and he only needs a breath to change the direction of our eternity and of our life. God put this criminal in our story so that A, we wouldn't get all high and mighty and think that I'm going to heaven because I've been better than you. No one gets to heaven because they've been better than anyone else. We all get to heaven because of a simple prayer of faith. When we say, Jesus, when you come in your power, will you remember me? I got nothing to offer you. And I'm breathing, dying breaths. But I believe that you are an innocent son of God. And I believe you have power that's going to last forever. Will you remember me? We can put more words around it. You can have greater understanding. You may have grown up around scripture and you know that you have sinned. You know that you've fallen short of God's glory. You know that Christ comes to take away our sin. You know that his sacrifice removes our stain. You know that when we put our faith in him, we're born to brand new life by his spirit. You know that his spirit comes into our hearts and brings our spirit to life. And that spirit says, Abba, Father. And we know that we are now reborn as sons and daughters of God. You know now that you have the power of God to walk 
walk in faith and to live out the hope of God for your life. You may have more information because of your background teaching and upbringing to know how to pray a more sophisticated prayer, and that is okay. But if all you know is, Jesus, you are an innocent man. Jesus, you are being crucified for something that you did not do and I believe you've got power and you're coming back in that power and I pray that you'll remember me Jesus because I got nothing but hope in you that God will hear that prayer God will hear that prayer and God will bring paradise to a dump he said today you will be with me in paradise. You know what I loved about that? I, I always thought about the guy being with Jesus in paradise, but what, I, what I'm coming to love about the phrase more as I've been sitting on it for a couple of weeks is that Jesus was saying, I'm going to be in paradise. I'm going to be in paradise. And if I'm not going to be in paradise, I don't have anything to offer you. If I'm not going to be in paradise, I can't offer you to be in paradise. He said, you're not just going to be in paradise. You're going to be with me in paradise because that had been the pattern of Jesus' life. That there was a little girl who was sick and Jesus was in Capernaum and they said, can you come to the house? Uh, my daughter's sick. And by the time Jesus got there, because he'd been delayed on the way to heal a woman who had a medical condition uh, for many, many, many years and no one could help her and Jesus had been touched by her, not even knowing that she was going to reach out for his garment and talk about a comeback. She barely hit the end of his robe and she was healed. And he said, whoa, power's gone out for me. And he says, oh, daughter, stand up. Your faith has made you whole. And I mean, just reaching through the crowd, being pressed out of the way by his own followers. She said, no, 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 I'm touching this man because this man's got power. My prayer is I just got to get a hold of him. And so he kept on going, and because of this little detour to heal this woman, by the time he arrived at the man's home, the mourners were already playing out in the courtyard, and the little girl had died. And they said, you don't need to stop here. It's too late. And Jesus said, no, it's not too late. I'm reading between the lines. I'm, I'm Jesus. I'm the Jesus of the comeback. And he went up into the room where the little girl laid and closed the blinds and he said to the little girl, wake up. And the little girl sat up and the father was like, oh, wow. And the mourners were like, oh, I guess we're not getting paid today. <laughs> They're packing up their flutes. <laughs> packing up all their morning gear. Oh, this, this was not going to happen. Well, I thought we had a little gig here today, but oh, we're not going to need the mourners at this house and carrying all their stuff off. You know, Jesus, you know, I don't know Jesus. Who's the Jesus guy? Next person dies. They're like, you guys know about Jesus? All right, great. We're going to come and mourn at your house. Ooh, they died. And, you know, it, he comes into the village of Nain. A lady's carrying her son out. A poor widow who's lost her only son He's going to a simple burial, probably to a hole in the ground where he's going in vertically and he's moments away on a stretcher being carried out to his burial. Jesus just happens to be showing up at Nain that day and touches the stretcher through all the people whom Jesus doesn't know any of, walks right in, puts his hand on the stretcher, stops the procession, says to the woman, don't cry, says to the son, get up. The son, it says, wakes up and starts talking. Don't you wanna know what he was saying? I mean, maybe he just started wherever he left off. Anyway, what I was saying was, was that we, you know, and he's like, wait a minute, why, what's going on? Why am I up here? Who are you? What 
What's, what is the deal? And why is my mom crying? And Jesus takes him, gives him back to his mom. And a funeral procession is stopped because Jesus is an interrupter of funerals and he is the God of the comeback. So Lazarus has been dead for days and is already stinky and dying. And Jesus says to him, I can still do something here. It's not too late. Oh, Jesus, if you'd only come sooner. Oh, master, if you'd only gotten here earlier. Look, we always think I need to be in the right place at the right time. No, it's only important that Jesus is in the right place at the right time. That's what's important. It's not important that you're in the right place at the right time. He said that thief could say, thank goodness we got crucified on the day that Jesus was crucified. No, thank God that Jesus was in a garbage dump on a cross. Because if he wasn't in a garbage dump on a cross, you die today. And you, you're just torn apart by the dogs. And that's the end of your story. But Jesus was in the right place at the right time. And when he got to Lazarus in Bethany, it was still the right place and the right time. Because Jesus was there. And he said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out of the tomb, bound up in burial clothes. The power of our story, people, is not coming and sitting in beautiful churches with all of our best feet forward. The power of our story is that God is not to be counted out ever. It is never too late for God to do a miracle. It is never too late. It is not too late in this house today for God to do a miracle. It is not too late for God to restore your family. It is not too late for him to restore your health, your thinking, your mental stability. It is not too late for him to restore your heart, to put your life back together, to restore the wounds that have been inflicted on you. It is not too late for God to call you out of a tomb, to call you off a burial stretcher, to call you out of a hole in the ground. It is not too late for him to speak to you hanging on a cross in the midst of your guilt and shame and the punishment that you deserve. It is not too late if you think you're in a garbage dump and you don't matter a thing to God, you're worth nothing to this world, it is not too late for you because paradise can come in a landfill, people. Paradise can come in a landfill. This is what Jesus does because our God is a God of resurrection and on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. So yes, we celebrate the cross, but we celebrate today the comeback and its power for your life and mine. Today, we talk about this nameless thief on the cross who found paradise in his last breath, but I want you to also see today the story of someone from our very own community, our very own neighborhood, and I want you to hear another comeback story today. This is the story of Rachel. I woke up one day with a gun to my head and had no clue how I got there, why there was a gun held to my head and why it happened to me. At that moment, you would think that I knew that it's time to get out and it's time to go, but that, that wasn't enough. That wasn't enough. Around the age of 12, my stepfather went on a downward spiral with a battle with methamphetamine and our family almost fell apart. My mom spent so much time trying to take care of our family and feed our family and take care of my sisters that she didn't have a lot of time for my emotional, my emotional issues and what I was feeling and what I was going through. She didn't have time to say, Rachel, are you okay? 
Someone introduced me to the club life when I was about 20, 22 years old, and I was just so enthralled. I was so insecure in the fact that men were telling me, you know, you're so beautiful and here's money, and I just was intrigued by that because I was finding acceptance in the club, acceptance in alcohol, acceptance in drugs, and acceptance in all the wrong places. The dark path of my life, it just led to worse and worse things. One problem led to the next, and one drug led to the next drug, and more drugs, and more alcohol, and it, it never, this void, this deep longing, this pain, it just couldn't be filled with anything else. There was mornings that my five-year-old son would have to take care of me because I couldn't even get out of the bed because I was so hungover. I was ready to kill myself. And the day that I said to myself, just go ahead, wreck your car on I-75, just go ahead, just be done, just so happened that I met a lady that night that came to me and she gave me what I needed. She, she was so concerned with my problems and my issues, but she just poured her heart out to me. And I sat there and I looked, I looked like, I looked down. I looked down in shame and I said, I can't look at you. You know, because I thought, how can he love me? An exotic dancer, a drug addict, an alcoholic, a bad mother. How can he love me? How can he be proud of me? How can he call me his daughter? Because I didn't feel worthy. But Jesus came through someone else and he rescued me. And when I think about, when I think about that night in the club, and it's honestly, it's just so dark. It's so dark and it smells bad and it's disgusting. It's the darkest, ugliest, nastiest place that you could think of this, of Jesus being in. And when I think about it and how I felt and I was like a zombie, I see him just scooping me out of the darkness and giving me light and giving me hope and giving me a future. So it's been six months since I told my story the last time. This Saturday I will be graduating from Wellspring Living Program for Women. And I have been out of the actual program for three weeks living in Birmingham, Alabama. I remember thinking, I'm never gonna get over this. I'm never gonna heal from this wound. There was zero hope within me. There was like negative hope. There was none, zero. And look, and if I, somebody would have said a year from now, you will not be addicted to drugs. You won't be an alcoholic. You'll be a great mother. There's no way I would have believed them. I, there's no way that I would have believed that God could restore anything in me or that he would take the time because I hated myself so much that I just knew God hated me. Since being in Birmingham, I have a wonderful church and I have met some of the most amazing women, amazing friends and sisters in Christ that build me up and God has given me this like fresh start. Here I am just living out what God, God's promises. I'm living out everything that He said He would restore and mine and my son's relationship is phenomenal. The other day he was like, Mom, I just love the new you, and I'm so glad you're better. 
I'm just so excited to see what else he has and more more healing and just more restoration because he does that. He doesn't stop healing. He doesn't stop forgiving. It just keeps coming and I'm just so excited to see what God has next. And that's my comeback. So um, in the midst of that journey, Rachel met Jesus. She got baptized right over there at Passion City Church and uh, stayed for many, many months in the Wellspring program. And then she's graduated and is going off to Birmingham to work uh, with people to rescue people who are in the same place that she was. And before she leaves and heads off to Birmingham, she wanted to spend uh, one last day at Passion City Church. And so she's here this morning. And Rachel, if you would stand, just let us say to you how excited we are about God's story that he's worked in your life so awesome You can just stay standing. Um, you know, what kind of church has uh, um, ladies who would go to some of these businesses nearby and reach out to people in a very, very uh, seemingly godless garbage heap? This kind of church, the Jesus kind of church. Jesus always has run into the darkness. There's two messages today. If you're trying to keep it all tidy and neat, Jesus can't help you. Because Jesus has always run in toward the darkness, into the brokenness. And Jesus is not afraid to go anywhere. Like, he'd never show up here, me drunk, me high, me on the streets, me embezzling money from the company, me out here running around doing crazy things, me having left my kids behind, me having said goodbye to my wife or my husband, me living life like a fool, me spewing out hate, God wouldn't be here. I got to figure out how to get where he is. No, Jesus is on a mission to get to where you are. He's not afraid of the darkness and the mess. He was born in a manger. He's not afraid to walk through any door at any moment, at any time. And if anyone sees him and says, Jesus, will you remember me? I need you. I need a savior. I need healing. I need deliverance. I need a rescue. I need to come back. 
He says, today, today, today is going to be a comeback. Paradise in a garbage dump. Paradise in a break room of a club. Paradise anywhere you are. Jesus.